Now, what I typically will do is we'll read the passage in one sitting, and then we'll dissect it. For the sake of time, we're just going to begin to jump right into our passage and dissect it kind of verse by verse, chunk by chunk. So let's look at verses 41 through 42 really quick. So following Jesus' claim to be the bread of life from heaven, the Jews begin to grumble. They said this, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So grumbling here tells us that Jesus' audience is discontent and that they are murmuring and complaining under their breath. So the Jews here are following in the footsteps of their ancestors in the wilderness. So think about this. All throughout John chapter 6, we've seen similarities between this story and the Exodus narrative in um, Exodus. Yeah, so in the same way that God miraculously provided manna for Israel through Moses, Jesus miraculously fed the crowd bread in the wilderness, which points to the point that he's trying to make now is that he is the true bread of life from heaven. Well, both before and after the feeding of the uh, Israel in the wilderness, Israel complained and grumbled against God. So they're constantly dissatisfied with God. They grumbled over the water they received in the wilderness. They grumbled over their lack of food in the wilderness. They then grumbled about the food that God miraculously provided for them in the wilderness. They're constantly dissatisfied with how God provided for them. Um, They're discontent. They constantly complain. Well, now, in the same way, Israel, in the same way that Israel complained about God's provision in the wilderness and revolted against Moses, the crowd is now complaining against Jesus, the true bread of life. So the Jews were grumbling about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And let's not be quick to throw stones about or throw stones at the audience or throw stones at uh, the Israel in the wilderness, contentment is not, a, is not common amongst the heart of men. This is something that we ourselves constantly do. So put yourself in their shoes for a moment, right? Think, they're thinking in a physical manner, in the same way that the woman at the well did, in the same way that Nicodemus did. Jesus speaks in a spiritual manner, and the audience always thinks in a physical manner. Manner. So they're saying, how can Jesus be from heaven if we know his parents? We watched Jesus grow up. We knew his mother and father. Joseph made our dining room table. Jesus made little Johnny's um, chairs in his room. So how can Jesus be from heaven if I know his mom and dad and watched him grow up? How can the carpenter's son have the right to claim such a divine heritage? Well, ignorant to Jesus' virgin birth, they're oblivious to his true identity. So forget the fact that he's uh, miraculously healed the sick leading up to this point. Forget the fact that he just fed the masses, that he literally just fed the very people that are grumbling against him. They've closed their eyes to all the signs that Jesus has performed up until this point. And they're ignorant to the fact that the eternal word has become flesh and is now dwelling among them. So who is Jesus to say such a thing? They're asking. How does Jesus now say, I have come down from heaven? 
and their complaining and their grumbling. So Jesus responds to them, do not grumble among yourselves. Let's pause there for a moment. I think there's a, a brief point of application I'd like to, to highlight. Rather than going to Jesus with questions um, or with the question, with the problem that they have, they grumble among themselves with their backs turned to Jesus, essentially, right? So rather than go to the source of truth, himself the embodiment of wisdom, uh, they resort to human reasoning, and human reasoning is often misinformed and unreliable. So listen, how often do we do the same, right? If we have an issue with someone, rather than go to that person, if we have a concern with someone, rather than go to that person, we begin to complain and grumble behind their backs to someone else. And the same thing we, I think we do with God. If we have an issue with God, rather than go to God asking for wisdom in his word, we'll shake our fists and complain and grumble against him. So may we not follow in the footsteps of the Jews here, complaining and grumbling with no real intention of discovering truth. Yes, yeah, so Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. And following Jesus' rebuke against their grumbling, he says a really profound and theologically controversial statement. So look at verses 44 through 46. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. In here, some of what Jesus said here is a reiteration of what he said last week. And so Wayne hit on this and then kind of punted it to this week. So an example of this would be verse 44, which is a reiteration that of a point that he made back in verse 37. So verse 37 says this. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so now we see the negative counterpart to what Jesus said in verse 37. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So where we see in verse 37, that verse on the top, that all who come to Jesus were given to Jesus by the Father... We now see that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent Jesus draws that person. Jesus possesses the power to both sustain the believer through his or her lifetime and raise that believer up on the last day, as we see in verse 44. So what I think Jesus is seeking to say here in these verses is, one, it's impossible to come to Jesus apart from the drawing of the Father. And then two, I think he's pointing to the audience, telling them that they're guilty of rejecting the Father's teaching. And we'll see that in greater detail as we begin to unpack this. But let's hit on this, this first point really quick. It's impossible to come to Jesus apart from the drawing of Jesus. In other words, your belief in Jesus is a gift from God that you have no grounds to boast in. It's strictly a result of the drawing of the Father. But I think an important thing for us to ask, or an important question for us to ask is, what does it mean to draw, right? John's not describing the action of the Father um, that's accomplished through coloring pencils and markers, 
right? It's not that type of drawing. Coming to Jesus doesn't depend upon God's ability to make a sketch, right? Not that type of drawing. Uh, the Greek word used for draw is helkoso. Um, and drawing here is a compelling or dragging or pulling in a specific direction. This word's used eight different times in the New Testament. An example would be in John chapter 12 where Jesus says that he will draw all people to himself, meaning that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be drawn to himself in belief. That's a helpful reference, but it doesn't really show us what type of drawing or pooling is being referenced here. However, every other time that this word is used in the New Testament, um, I think does give us an idea of what this drawing looks like. An example, it's, this is the same word used in John 18 to describe Peter drawing his sword. So John 18, verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut it off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. It's the same word used in John 21 to describe Peter drawing a net full of fish onto the land. So it says this, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. It's the same word used twice in Acts to describe Paul being drugged before the authorities. So Acts 16, verse 19. But where her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the authorities. Acts 21, verse 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And then in James chapter 2, verse 6, where James asks, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? We're beginning to kind of see a consistent theme of this word, draw, right? It's a strong language used here. And in each of these cases, Richard Phillips says, In each of these cases, there's an idea of resistance that's overcome by superior force, which ultimately means this tells us that conversion is a supernatural work that relies on God's power alone. So the sword would never move unless Peter pulled it. The fish would stay in the water unless the disciples drug them onto land. The oppressed would never walk before the authorities unless they were seized and drugged. Right? So as difficult as this is to wrap our minds around, we have to understand that Scripture always paints a picture of salvation being a miraculous work of God. So unbelievers are no more able to come to Christ than a sword is able to be pulled out of a sheath. Ephesians 2, Wayne referenced this last week, tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our sins. So sin has blinded us, it has corrupted us and it has hardened our hearts and so because of our sin we spiritually lay lifeless incapable of coming to God on our own so God is glorified in drawing men and women who are doused and covered in sin drowned in sin um, by bringing them to faith in his son Jesus no one can come to Jesus unless the father draws him right so with that being said 
this supernatural drawing of the Father is not an oppressive dragging of sinners into the kingdom while they kick and scream against it, right? So I think that the image maybe we have in our mind now is Peter throwing a net into the water, catching fish, and those fish like flopping, trying to, you seen Finding Nemo, right? Swim down, swim away, right? Like that's not the picture we see here, okay? So God's not throwing a net out, catching sinners, and then pulling them to shore against their will. That's not the picture we see here. Rather, the way that God compels belief is through the wonderful wooing of a lover. And we'll begin to see that more as we journey through this. I think we begin to see how this is played out in verses 45 through 46. Um, so we see the strong language in 43 now, or 44, and now we're beginning to see the, the nuts and bolts of how this plays out. Look at these verses. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus here is quoting Isaiah 54 verse 13. And we see here that the way that the Father draws us to Jesus is through the teaching of his word. Hearing and learning leads to coming. So everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, comes to Jesus. The way that the Father draws is through the insight and teachings of his word. He woos us that way. So Romans chapter 10 says this, for everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That heard, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. The way the Father draws in is through the insight and teaching of his word. And somehow through this process, God miraculously begins to transform and and change our hearts, replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. So rather than leave us in our sin, God pursues us. He convicts us. He teaches us of our brokenness and our need for Jesus. And then we somehow call. We make the choice to call upon Jesus And he saves us, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins to give us a desire and a hunger for him, the true bread of life, the only one who has seen the Father. So through the drawing of the Father, we come to Jesus in faith, and he graciously gives us life. And so because of our love for sin, we cannot and would not come to Jesus without the drawing of the Father. Which means for his audience, the reason for their grumbling or the reason for them not seeing Jesus for, who, truly, for he, who he truly is, and the reason that they reject him is because they refuse to listen and be instructed by God himself. They're rejecting this. The crowd is guilty of rejecting the Father's teaching. And we saw this in John chapter 5. Despite all of the evidence given to the religious leaders, they've rejected Jesus. And so listen, there's always going to be a tension between this 
Father drawing, no one being able to come to Jesus without the Father drawing them, and then the responsibility of mankind to believe, the call to repent and turn to Jesus. And so the responsibility of humanity is not diminished by the drawing of the Father. So do not hear me saying that this is um, completely on God. We have no responsibility at all. No, the entire purpose of this gospel is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So there is 100% a responsibility on man to respond in repentance and believe in him. The whole purpose of this gospel is to call us to believe in Jesus. But I think as you begin to reflect on your own life, you'll clearly begin to see both aspects of this. Um, Someone told you about Jesus. Someone felt led, led by God to share the gospel with you. They opened up the Bible, laid out the gospel to you. You began to feel conviction um, and felt the need to place your faith in Jesus, to give your life to him, and you made that conscious decision to do so. Um, And so I think that this would be really good for community groups this week. What I would love for you to do is each of you take time to share your testimony with one another. My primary reasoning for wanting us to do this is not that we can debate some theological um, things of Calvinism, Arminianism, God choosing, us making a choice, all of that. Lay that aside. I want us to share our testimony with one another. We have new groups that have come into existence here at Harbor, and we have groups that have shifted around, so we're still in a very new season with community groups where We don't truly know one another, deeply know one another in our groups. I think it would be really good for us to take time this week to share our testimony with one another. That may take up your entire time. So community group leaders, you may have to just come up with one question this week, and that is this. So you're welcome. So share with the group, one, how did you feel God drawing you to himself? So when was the first time you heard the gospel, right? Uh, Who shared it? With you, What passage in scripture, scripture did you read? And then when did you decide to call upon the name of Jesus and believe? When did you place your faith in Jesus? What led to this decision? I want you to be thinking through this, reflecting on this, so we can share that with our groups this week. Now, for some of you, the thought of doing this makes you want to throw up, right? The thought of sharing your testimony in the front of a community group is like... I'm out. I think I'm going to be sick this week. Um, you're texting your community group leader now. Hey, I got a cold. I'm, I'm not going to make it. Um, others of you are social butterflies, and you're like, yeah, like, let's do it. I'm about it. Um, some of you, however, are anxious at the thought of doing this because there's never been a time where you've placed your faith in Jesus. right? There's never been a moment. You can't look back on your life and say, Yeah, this is when I decided to give my life to Jesus. Um, And so my prayer in us doing this as a church is that it will force us to think through the salvific work of God in our own life. And then hopefully, if you're not a believer, it will force you to begin to think through this and that God, by his grace, will begin to use this to draw you to himself. Um, that this will be a, a saving moment for you. Um, 
so yeah, um, maybe this all begins for you today. Like your testimony that you share with your group this week says, hey, on um, October 6th at 12 p.m., I decided to give my life to Jesus and place my faith in him. All that to say, I pray that this will be a fruitful discussion that will lead to praising God for his grace. So going back to our passage, there's always going to be a tension between um, no one being able to come to Jesus without him drawing, without the Father drawing, and then the responsibility of man to respond and believe. There's always going to be a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The responsibility of humanity is not mitigated by the drawing of the Father. If you're going to enjoy eternal life, then you must believe. Jesus makes that crystal clear, and we see that in verses 47 through 51. So let's look at these verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that no one may eat of it and not die. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what does Jesus say in verse 47? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. But believe in what? Right? I think it's a valid question. Believe that Jesus is the only source of eternal life, the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We expounded on that a lot last week, but the bread that Israel ate in the wilderness was not an eternally sustaining bread, right? It satisfied temporarily for a moment. The bread Israel ate in the wilderness was only sufficient for one day at a time. Um, It was incapable of sustaining them for a lifetime. Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. None of them are still alive physically. Jesus, however, offers so much more. Eat of the bread from heaven and you will never hunger, as we saw last week. You'll never thirst, as we saw last week. And now we see that you will never die. Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. And I think a helpful question for us is to wrestle through that question. What does it mean to eat of this bread, right? In the latter part of verse 51, he tells us what that bread is. He says, and the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. So the bread that he is telling us to consume is his body, is his flesh. So first off, what Jesus is saying is that in order for sinful humanity to have eternal life, he must give up his flesh. And the bread that I will give Give up, for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus here is speaking to the future giving of himself on the cross, which tells us that Jesus is fully 100% aware of his purpose in coming to this world. The cross was not plan B. The purpose of Jesus coming to the world was for him to redeem sinners through his death on the cross. He was aware of that. He knew his purpose. The purpose of Jesus coming to the world was not to simply meet physical needs, as the crowd thought. Rather, he came down from heaven to give his life up on the cross so that, he, so that the world may have life in him. So for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
So Jesus here is using the metaphor of consuming physical bread to illustrate how we are saved and sustained as believers. In the midst of a hopeless situation in the wilderness, God sent bread to daily save, sustain, and care for and nurture his people, Israel. And the people had to, what they had to do was go out and gather that bread and then consume that bread. Well, in the same way, God sent his son into the world miraculously in the midst of a hopeless situation where people are dead in their sins um, in order to provide eternal life for his people through belief. So all we had to do is look upon the son in belief. But this belief that the Gospel of John calls us to isn't an intellectual concept alone. It's not something that we just sit and think about or something we ponder. If Jesus is the true bread that has come down from heaven, then the only response for us to do is to consume him. And as strange as that metaphor sounds, we're not foreign to that type of language, right? The Kennedys brought their baby in today. Where'd they go? Yeah. Beautiful little girl. What will people say, right? What will your Nana say? She's so cute, I just want to eat her up, right? Like, Nana doesn't really want to eat the baby. That, that's strange, right? We're not cannibals, right? So we're not advocating cannibalism when we say that. Rather, what we're saying is that we want to pick that baby up and intimately enjoy fellowship with that baby, right? And rather, um, someone also, if someone presents a idea to you, we're debating on whether or not uh, Tua is a better quarterback than Jalen. Um, somebody presented stats to Billy, and Billy's, I have to chew on that, right? You have to ponder those stats. You can't just immediately accept that as true. Or if we find a good book, we want to devour that book, right? So this type of language we're not foreign to, right? We want to eat up the baby. We need to chew on stats. We devour good books. So when we say these things, we're metaphorically saying that we take in, consume, or enjoy something. So what Jesus is saying is that belief in Jesus isn't merely intellect alone in the same way that staring at or thinking about or understanding bread doesn't give us energy and life. Reading about, thinking about, and understanding Jesus doesn't equate to life. We are to take in and consume, trust in, believe in, put our life in Jesus, trust in him. We're to stake our lives on Jesus. He becomes the very thing that gives us purpose and hope and energy in life. Where we were once hopeless without him, we have now hope. We now have life in him. The God of the universe is calling broken sinners into a deep intimate fellowship with him here. And this point flew right over his listeners' ears or head. Um, And we see that in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, Jesus is obviously not advocating cannibalism. And we know that because no one ever took a bite out of Jesus, right? And so he has to be speaking metaphorically here. He's calling us to believe in, trust in his atoning work on the cross. And this metaphorical language is all throughout verses 51 through 58. Look at this. Verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 55, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever, verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then verse 57, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And then whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So consistent theme of eat, consume, feed on all throughout these verses. And so church, I think it would be foolish for us to not observe communion today, right? In, in light of what Jesus is saying here. But before we do that, let me address maybe a misconception of this passage. Jesus does not have the Lord's Supper in mind here. Jesus is speaking to his atoning work on the cross. Believe in him. Trust in him. Some have read this verse to think that Jesus is speaking to his future tense, the Lord's Supper. And so they're saying the literal eating of the bread, literal drinking of the wine would be literally eating his flesh here. The Lord's Supper wouldn't be introduced until a year later on the night that he was betrayed. And if he is referring to the Lord's Supper, then he would be advocating that salvation hinges on our ability to eat and drink the wine. That salvation would hinge on our observance of this ordinance. And that would contradict the argument that he's been making up until this point, which is the will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day by Jesus. So Jesus is telling his audience that their only hope for salvation, for eternal life, is um, him, the one that has come down from heaven. And that he's going to give himself up so that the world might enjoy eternal life through him. So it's incredibly beautiful that the avenue to which God chose to bring himself glory was through the suffering of his son Jesus. God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh, came into a hopeless situation in the midst of a sinful world. And he lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we should have died. And that was his plan. But the story doesn't end there, right? Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, providing us with eternal hope. That if we believe in him, if we trust in him, if we give our life to him, we will have eternal life. And so where we were once dead in our sins, enemies of God, at our wits end, we are now by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, sons and daughters of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is to be a time where we, as the body of Christ, remember, reflect on, and celebrate God's salvific power in Christ, the true Passover lamb. Now, if you're not a believer, I would ask that you refrain from partaking in this communion until you come to faith in Jesus. And that invitation is here for you today. If you're not a believer, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Place your faith in Jesus and enjoy this time of communion with us. So as a church, we bow in reverence, respect, and awe of Christ, giving him the glory that he rightfully deserves. And so fast forward a year from the story on the night that he was betrayed. 
Jesus takes the bread, and when he gives thanks, he breaks it and says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.